I just clap? Like for real? Okay. Good morning, Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church. Those of you who are here uh, in the sanctuary and those of you who are tuning in to the video recording that we will be uh, uploading later today to the Internet, I do really appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Uh, uh, As you are aware, um, all of the peripheral ministries here at the church have been uh, postponed until further notice, and we will be uh, uh, recording the messages and uh, not live streaming yet, but um, uploading the recording up onto the internet for you to uh, still uh, be exposed to the Word of God as, as it is opened up and taught. We will uh, announce, uh, hopefully in a couple weeks, that this will conclude, but we really don't know at this time. Just uh, stay tuned until further notice. And continue to pray for your church, continue to pray for one another during these um, uh, frustrating times. Uh, I will... Uh, I would encourage you to turn to Numbers chapter 13. We will continue our public, and in this case, digital uh, scripture reading of the Word of God. Numbers chapter 13. The Word of God says, But the Lord then spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the sons of Israel. These were their names from the tribe of Reuben. Shemua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Navi, the son of Vosi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent out to spy, to spy out the land. But Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. When Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they are to live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob at Libo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. 
Then they came to the valley of Eskel, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men, and some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Let's pray. Lord God, we see in this text uh, uh, almost a prototype of the same great concern and fear that we have in our culture today. There are many today who feel uh, as impotent and as small and as frail and as helpless as little grasshoppers before uh, this great pandemic uh, that is happening right now. And just as your people so quickly forgot that you are a God who provides, who sustains, who takes care of his people. So let us be a, a, a people who remembers that great care and concern that you have. Let us not be like, like those among the children of Israel who so quickly forgot how, how with such a great arm and with great wonders and miracles you redeemed them from under the most powerful nation in the world at the time. We lift up the many who are uh, genuinely ill in this time, we ask that you would comfort them. We ask that you would grant them uh, healing of, of body and that you would grant them peace and serenity of soul. Comfort them. We pray for the many health care workers who, uh, who are those who are, are on the front lines right now. Give them uh, focus. Grant them uh, dedication. Grant them um, uh, protection as they, uh, as they serve their neighbor right now, those who, who need immediate care. We pray for those uh, who are vulnerable, those who uh, perhaps have a, a weakened or compromised immune system. Lord, we ask in your, in your sovereignty, in your providence, and in your great power and mercy that you would uh, cause this uh, uh, illness to pass over them. We pray for the, uh, the unemployed, those uh, in our communities, those in our families, those in our cities, 
who are affected and uh, uh, being afflicted by the uh, economic upheaval that's happening right now, those who have lost jobs, those who have been laid off. We entrust ourselves to you in that regard. We pray that you would provide for us and for, for those uh, who are out of work. Uh, cause them to lean on you even with, with greater clarity, with greater faith. We pray for our government leaders. Uh, it's so easy and so often that we uh, have a bad and low opinion of them because of, uh, of many faults and mistakes and even evils that our leaders have done in the past. Nevertheless, Lord, let us be a people who prays for our leaders, grant them wisdom, grant them discernment, grant them integrity, help them to do what is right and good for those whom they represent. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our churches. We pray for your churches. Lord, give the, we, give the leaders wisdom, discretion, discernment, prudence. Help, help me and Charlie to effectively minister the best that we can, uh, given the circumstances that you have uh, providentially placed us in. Grant every pastor who takes seriously the charge to shepherd the flock of God among them. Help, help each elder, each pastor to be a faithful uh, minister of the gospel in a time such as this. We pray for the church bodies and, and church members um, and those who can't uh, physically be here right now. We entrust them to you. We ask that you would cause this time to pass quickly so that we can uh, rejoin uh, the sweet fellowship and community that we have with the community of believers. Amen. So at this point, we would have a transitionary hymnal, but we will proceed straight into the scripture from which we will examine this morning for our message. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. The title of the message is uh, uh, not particularly creative. It's taken from the main point, and it's taken from the command that Jesus says three times. So I'm calling it what I think Jesus would have called it. Do not worry. Do not worry. And unless you have had your head in a, under a rock or, um, or in the sand, you would know that worry is rampant right now. You see, you see the worry and fear and anxiety of people in their social media. You see it on Facebook posts, on Facebook polls and tweets and news broadcasts and announcements from local governments and municipals, announcements from even uh, uh, nationwide leaders and international leaders. There is a lot of worry uh, going out right now. And so I thought it advantageous and profitable for us to turn our minds to a portion of Scripture that addresses worry and, and instructs us what to do in light of its presence. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. And real quick, this is just to give you some context, this is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably... Uh, and perhaps Jesus' most, uh, most famous sermon. And it was probably a collection of sermons that he gave on the mount that day on the, on the seashore of Galilee. This 
sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, is first and foremost a sermon that he is giving to his true disciples. If you look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 1 and 2, Matthew writes that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And it's traditionally viewed that he's getting up uh, uh, kind of to the apex of an amphitheater so he can teach. Uh, one possibility, we can't be entirely sure, is that he's, he sees the crowds and he is getting away so that, he, so that his true disciples will have room to get to him. Because he, they are who he is primarily teaching. You see in verses 1 and 2, he does not open his mouth until after his disciples come to him. So his, his disciples and us and we are those who will benefit from this sermon. It's said that there are two things in life that are certain. Death and taxes. And despite the, the irony that we're in the middle of tax season right now, you don't really hear anything about taxes uh, on the news or on social media. You and I both know that this isn't the issue on the forefront of many people's minds. But death is. The concern and the fear of death is certainly on people's minds. And while our culture avoids talking about death, which you can see is as our culture hedonistically tries to squeeze every single drop of satisfaction and gratification from all of their experiences in this earthly life. The sober reality is, is that death is nevertheless a, a certainty. Death is a certainty. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed to man once to die. And I fear that, that most people don't know how to handle the reality that one day death is going to come knocking on their door. It seems the only time we do talk about death is when it is knocking at our door through uh, perhaps through the death of a loved one or through an accident or in this case, a worldwide pandemic. But we must recall, if we're going to think about this soberly, we must recall that the world has seen many other catastrophic diseases and, and other pandemics at times when information traveled much slower, when people traveled slower. Governments couldn't just easily ask people and expect people to stay indoors. People knew far less about germs and how to prevent them. Effective medical treatment was practically non-existent. And so you can forget about bleaching and hand washing and cough pockets. We should be extremely grateful that for a disease with such a huge potential for destruction, the stats say that only roughly 11,000 people have died worldwide as of March 21st. We should be thankful for the relatively low death count and for the, that the ability that we have to deal with their particular threat but we forget that not even, actually it was about a century ago in 1918, 50 to 100 million people died in the vast influenza pandemic, uh, sometimes called the, the Spanish flu. 75 million people, half of Europe 
died within a few year, years in the 14th century from the Black Death, also called the Great Mortality. And there's a reason they call it that. This world certainly can feel like a fearful place to be during times such as these. But what does the Bible reveal to us? The Bible reveals that it reveals a God who superintends this very same world that can be so fearful and so frightful. He superintends the world no matter what distress or disease is afflicting it. And, and what's even more remar- remarkable is that not only does he superintend the world, but he has stepped into the world to draw near to man. He has drawn He has stepped into the world to have fellowship with man, with us. This very same God says to his own, in light of their very real, very tangible, and very great concern for survival, he says, not once, not twice, but three times he says, do not worry. Verse 25, he says it, do not worry. Do not be worried. In verse 31, do not worry. And again in verse 34, do not worry. I've heard it said that the key to learning is repetition, and repetition is the key to learning. So the main takeaway is very hard to miss. Do not worry. But that doesn't mean that it's easy to apply. It's particularly hard difficult to apply, and it is easy to forget in the hustle and bustle of life. So again, I I reemphasize the point. Christians, those who are the Lord's people, as Christians, we ought not to worry. Three times he says, do not worry, and three times he tells us why. Verses 25 to 30, we get the first reason. Do not worry because of who your father is. Second reason comes in verses 31 to 33. Do not worry because of who your family is. And then in verse 34, do not worry because of what your future holds. Jesus says, verse 25, for this reason I say to you, and that's, that's pointing to the entire uh, context that has come before this, but we have to be like paratroopers jumping into this text and not look behind us, but press forward. I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's look at the first, the first command that Jesus gives along with the first reason Do not worry because of who your father is. The King James, which is uh, perhaps the version that some of you or some of you out there uh, in digital land uh, have had uh, growing up. The King James renders this command, take no thought for your life. And that that outdated translation could give us the impression That Jesus is saying, don't even think about your life. I mean, if you're going to take it literally, which is something we we emphasize here, take no thought for your life could mean don't think at all. Don't have a thought. Don't entertain a thought. Don't plan. You don't need to plan at all for your life. You don't need to plan for tomorrow. That's not what Jesus means here. There are many things about today and tomorrow and beyond that that need planning, even even careful planning and forethought and wise, deliberate action. But the idea here, what Jesus is prohibiting is excessive worry, inappropriate worry. Go ahead, plan for your life, make choices, prepare for the for your future. But don't become excessively concerned. Don't allow yourself to become anxious. Don't become so so wound up that you can't sleep at night. Don't become so mentally preoccupied that you begin to fret and pace and you become distracted and frantic. Now, what is it in particular that Jesus is prohibiting us from worrying excessively about? He says in verse 25, Do not be worried about what? Your life. Do not be worried about your life. And very quickly, Jesus explains what he means by life as to what you will eat, as to what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. These are... These are the, the, the basic, simple necessities of life that, that people need to survive. You don't eat, you won't survive. You don't drink, you won't survive. You go, you go out there naked, you won't survive, not, not especially in this climate. You need these things to, to survive, yet Jesus says, do not be overly concerned. Don't become anxious. Don't become apprehensive for acquiring these things. Now, in our day, we had to do some work on our part to really relate to this this prohibition. In our day, we may worry and fret about the quality 
of the food and drink and clothes that we acquire. We may fret about the kind and the type of foods that we will find on the menu or at the grocery store. We, we might ask, are, are the vegetables organic? Is the, is the beef free range? What kind of c- conditions were the, were the chickens held in? Are, are there GMOs or is there trans fat in this food? Do you, do you have any almond milk? But the worry most people had in Jesus' day and, and practically the entire world in every generation and really until the last century or so was, was not what quality, what kind of food will I find at the grocery store? What kind of food will I find on the menu? The question on everyone's mind was, will I find food? Will I find drink today? Will there be a famine or drought that will prevent our crops from growing and being harvested? Will a thief or a vandal ruin what we have worked so hard to grow? Will moths eat our clothes? Will rust ruin the things we need? The history of God's people demonstrates that time and time again, God kept Israel from famine or drought. That's one of the things that put God's name on the map of the old world is that God took care of his people. This, that was a, a stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant. But we also know that another stipulation of the Mosaic Covenant was if as the people disobeyed and broke their covenant, God would, would withdraw his blessings. And we know from time to time on occasion, Israel did suffer famine and drought. So there were legitimate reasons for the people to be concerned about food. There were also leg- legitimate reasons to be concerned about drink. Most wells in Israel were hand-dug. They didn't have caterpillar excavators and diesel-powered tractors to dig wells. They dug mostly by hand. The wells were quite shallow. And when even the slightest drought occurred, these wells quickly dried up. You may say, well, aren't there rivers in Israel? Yes, there are, but very few of them had water year-round. Most of them raged and uh, just filled up and actually became lethal during the rainy season. But as soon as the rain stopped, the rivers quickly turned to mud and then quickly dried to dirt and rock. And that is still true today. Well, wasn't there, weren't there a couple lakes around? Well, yeah, there was the, the Sea of Galilee and there was the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea does not offer drinkable water. And there were no desalting plants, forgive me, to extract the water and make it drinkable. People, the, the, the sobering reality, the sobering truth of many, most, virtually all people of Jesus' day is that they were well acquainted with dehydration. You didn't have to explain what it means to have your tongue uh, uh, cleave to the roof of your mouth. You didn't have to explain about why your child's voice became hoarse because they haven't had anything to drink today. We only have that experience. I Maybe it's just me. I tend to only have that experience when I get carried away working in the yard or when we go on a hike and Jen says, did you remember to bring water? And I go, oh, 
for them, for those in the old world, it was just another Tuesday. Jesus also said not to worry about clothing. Now, clothes were made mostly from wool. Wool comes from sheep. See, you guys have to speak because nobody from the camera is able to speak. So, clothes mainly came from the livestock, which was likewise affected when there was drought. Less water, less grass. Less grass, less sheep. Less sheep, less wool. You do the math. That and it, that, uh, the, the, the lack of wool from the lack of sheep was only compounded by the increased time and effort and energy that was required to find and procure food and water in times of drought. How many of you have, have driven from store to, you know, spent five times as long trying to find supplies because you're driving from store to store only to find out this place is sold out, this place is sold out, this place is sold out? Less clothes meant less protection against the heat, the, the, the heat of the sun and the scorching winds from the east and the bitter cold at night. Yes, Palestine can get very warm during the day, but temperatures can, can just drop at night. So clothing was a necessity. Jesus draws on two vivid pictures to explain, to illustrate the first reason why God's people shouldn't worry. And they're the same reason. He uses two pictures, but it's the same reason. And these are both pictures that everyone can relate to. That's the power of a parable. Connecting a, an invisible truth, laying it or tethering it to an invisible truth, or to, to a visible truth, using a, a picture that everybody could relate to. He says first, look, look to the birds of the air. He draws the attention, your attention up. And this is, this is not a suggestion, it's an imperative. He is telling the people, look, go ahead, look up right now. And as he's saying these, there is probably a flock of birds flying overhead. One man has called Galilee the migration crossroads of the ancient worlds. Birds were everywhere. Israel was along the main migratory path from Europe to Africa. So not only were there native birds, there were birds that were flocking back and forth through Israel. Jesus says, they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. Translation, they are not concerned. They do not worry they do not store up goods for themselves. They don't storm into Costco and fill four carts full of delicious, delicious food. And yet, what, what is the result? What, is, what happens as a result of them not worrying, not panicking, not being work, worked up into a fervor? Do they perish? Jesus says, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That's the power of a parable. Invisible truth tethered to a visible truth. God takes care of the birds. He'll take care of you. He says, he asks rhetorically, aren't you worth, are you not worth much more than they? Implied answer, of course you are. Of course you are. God takes care of the birds 
And Luke actually tells, uh, you know, Mark keeps it general, or Matthew keeps it general. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus specifically said ravens. And there are a few passages in the Old Testament that refer to God feeding the ravens. Uh, I have have to pass over them for time's sake. But the ravens, like vultures and like eagles, were scavenger birds. They were carrion birds. They were unclean birds. The point is, is Jesus is taking the most reprehensible, repulsive animal among the animal kingdom, the, the, the bird that, you, that they would have expected God to be least concerned about, that the, the bird that God could have care, couldn't have cared less whether it lived or died. Jesus says God even takes care of that one. Even the raven, even the birds. The birds who are not his children. The birds who are of little value. In this case, the ravens who are unclean. Those things, those little flappy thingies that are so low on the creative order. God takes care of them. What makes you think he would do, he, he would do any less for you? You who are his children. You who are of much greater value. You who bear his image. So if you want evidence that God takes care of his creation, you need look no further than up at a flock of birds. And while you're looking up, go ahead and look down also. Look at the flowers of the field. Jesus continues and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. And this, this is referring every lady here. Uh, the, 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 the sowing and the reaping and the gathering into barns likely is pointing to the men. That is what men predominantly did. The, the spinning and the toiling and the weaving is, uh, is likely Jesus speaking to the ladies. And we know that there are ladies here. We saw a couple weeks ago uh, in Mark 15, 40 and 41 that there were many women who followed him and, and sat at his feet to listen and ministered to him ever since Galilee. Well, we are in Galilee. We know there are ladies here. He's speaking to them now. And he's speaking to something that they are well acquainted with, this lengthy process of shearing the wool and then combing the wool and getting all the knots and all the foreign little things out and then spinning the wool and then weaving the wool and then taking a fuller's hammer and smashing the wool in order to make it watertight, sometimes dyeing the wool. Most, most of the poor did not dye their wool, so it was a tan or a, or a brown or a white. Uh, and then finally... After all this process, finally making it into a garment. That's all summarized in toil. And that's, I think that's why Jesus uses the word toil. Toil is more than work. Toil is work. You toil and you spin. This is what you do on a daily basis. This is what gets you quite worked up wondering how you're going to get everything done. This, amongst all the other responsibilities that you have to do. Yet, Jesus says, I say to you, not even Solomon, in all of his glory. And scripture tells us Solomon was the wealthiest man who ever walked the earth. 
He was a man uh, of, of worldly terms, of material terms, of kingdom terms. He was a glorious man. He had great glory, yet not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these lilies of the field. Now, God has made some beautiful flowers out there. And a friend of mine, Carl McCarthy, often posts pictures, just breathtaking pictures, perhaps of a, of a seacoast or a, or a mountain range or, or, or the woods, and just with beautiful, beautiful colors as, as the sun is setting and, and the light is reflecting on all these just wonderful aspects of God's creation. He makes this, this, this statement, God is my favorite artist. There are some beautiful flowers out there, absolutely breathtaking flowers. And what is likely the case is one of these lilies has rich purple hues, which would resemble or look like the, the purple robes that a, that a royal or a, or a dignitary or a noble would wear. So these look like little, little Solomons. Growing on the field. God's saying the real Solomon can't even compare with these. God provides natural beauty for them. Natural attire. And he says, if God so clothes the grass, if he, if he clothes them in such a manner that it is even greater than Solomon's. Solomon is putting on glory these flowers the their glory comes from within it comes from their nature if god so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace when once once uh, uh um, fauna and uh, uh uh reeds and grass died it was it was used as tinder and it could it could uh start fires really easily it was fuel if if he Close the grass of the field, which is so lowly that it's used for fuel. But he takes care of them. Will he not much more clothe you? He, as he provides for the birds, he provides for the rest of his. He provides for the rest of his creation. He provides for the flora. And if God so provides for the flora, again something not made in his image, something much lower in the creative order, if he clothes them with such beauty and splendor, what makes you think he likewise won't clothe you with what you need? You who are created in a much higher order. You who bear his image. You who are of much more importance. And here Jesus tells us why, why man often doesn't make this connection, he says, you of little faith. Beloved, we often take our eyes off God. We often put our eyes on ourselves and our own problems, and we think we are the cure. We have the solution. We, have, we can fix our own woes instead of giving them to God. We, we likewise can be people of little faith. Spurgeon says that the sovereignty of God is the pillow at which he lays his 
hard on each night. And neither parable means that we are just to sit idly and passively and expect God's going to do all the work and just drop a roasted chicken into our laps or put new clothes on us. Notice, notice, yes, Jesus says he feeds the birds of the air, but everyone knew the birds still had to go out and gather food each day, right? And while God clothes the flowers, they still have to send their roots deep down into the earth and gather the nutrients. But here's the point. Being lesser things in God's eyes, they do not worry about acquiring what they need. They don't worry. And neither should we. If those things which are lower in the creative order, if base Things don't need to worry about being fed and being clothed. Neither should we, who are made in God's image. God has given us life. He is likewise able to sustain the very life he created. He sustains the birds of the air. He sustains and provides for the flower of of the field surely your father who created you and loves you will do the same for you so why are you worrying the second reason that we are not to worry is because of who our family is in verses 31 to 33 jesus repeats the problem what's the problem that we are a people prone to worry he says do not worry then that presupposes the problem and then he repeats the command, do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? And then he provides the reason why we ought not, the second reason why we ought not to worry. He says, the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Now he's speaking primarily, he's speaking to Jews, to those who are inside the family, those who are a part of the family of God, those who, are, who have the covenant of God, those who have for centuries and for millennia been made uh, benef- uh, beneficiaries and recipients of his mercy and his grace and his good favor. And he says the Gentiles, those who are outside your family, those who do not know God, those who are outside the covenant of God, those who have rejected God, those who have made their gods of their own. They eagerly seek all these things. And that word eagerly, it could be, you could also say zealously or fanatically or with everything they have, they throw their all into seeking and acquiring these things. But you are God's family. You know the covenant of God. You know the character and the nature of God. And more importantly, beloved, God knows you and has sworn that he'll care for you. So we don't need to worry like those who are outsiders. The Gentiles or the nations being God rejectors, they are on their own. They, in a sense, they are their own saviors. From their perspective, their survival utterly depends on how stocked up and prepared they are. And the way they see it, their survival comes down to their own grim determination and their perseverance. Because in the final analysis, 
at the end of the day, no one is looking out for them. They are on their own. Again, the point, not so with you. God has made you his own. His name, listen, his own reputation is tethered to your welfare. Moses recognized this. Where did that go? Exodus 32, Moses says, when it looks like God is on the verge of destroying his people, this is just after the golden calf, Moses says, why, why should the Egyptians speak, in such, uh, speak saying that God has, only, has merely brought them out with an evil intent to destroy them? That he didn't redeem them. He didn't save them to be kind to them. He brought them out so that he could slay them. That would be an evil report. That would be an, uh, uh, a slanderous accusation against God's name. And that's, that's, in, that's in the very beginning of the Old Testament. What about in the Psalms, Israel's hymnal book, Psalm 23.3, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, your welfare your, the way you walk is tethered to God's reputation. Psalm 25, 11, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. Psalm 31, 3, You are my rock and my fortress. For your namesake, you will lead me and guide me. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us. Psalm 106, 8, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. Psalm 109:21. But you, O Lord, deal kindly with me because I'm such a great guy? No, for your namesake. Psalm 143:11. And this is from from each of the five books of the Psalms. Psalm 143:11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. God's reputation is tethered. It hinges on whether he sustains you or lets you fall away. That is a promise. The Gentiles, the nations, the, the, all the confederations of, of man. That is not a right nor a privilege that they have, but it is a right and a privilege that you have. You do not need to worry because of who your family is. Third, do not worry because of what your future holds. Verse 34. And I don't think this is speaking to your Heavenly future, why would, if you are in Christ, if you know the Lord, why would anybody worry about their, their heavenly future? I think this is talking about the immediate future, the things that everyone worries about, saved and unsaved. Your immediate future, the next 24 hours, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow, and then the day after that. Don't worry about what tomorrow holds. Why? Jesus gives us two answers. First is because tomorrow is already worrying it for is already worrying for itself, and this is Jesus poking a little fun at worry 
by making it, by making it look silly. He says, tomorrow will will care, and this is the same word for worry. It will worry for itself. It will carry care for itself. And he uh, he follows suit with um, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress when he he personifies a character or an attribute or a quality, and he makes it a person, right? And he he makes uh, uh, tomorrow a person. He, he personifies it as if he, uh, tomorrow is this fretting, floor-pacing, hand-wringing, hyperventilating fellow with beads of sweat sliding down his brow with a quivering lip with sandbags under his eyes because he hasn't slept in days on the brink of an anxiety attack and who does nothing more than worry. That's what tomorrow looks like. He's not doing anybody any good. He's just worrying. And in a sense, Jesus is is saying, in in effect, look how silly, look how pitiful tomorrow looks, just standing there, pacing and worrying. Why, why Why would you want to join company with that? Why would you want to get that man's counsel? Why would you want to yoke yourself with one like him and let him influence you. You let you let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. You be concerned with what's on your plate today. Tomorrow worries for itself, so you don't need to. Secondly, he says each day has enough trouble of its own. This word enough it can mean sufficient, it can mean adequate, it, it can mean no more, no less than what is needed. Each, it, it is an appropriate amount, it is a sufficient amount. Each day has enough trouble, each day has its appropriate limit or supply of trouble. And what comes with each day's supply of trouble? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, that's the trouble, will provide the way of escape also. So that you can avoid the trouble? So that you can alleviate the trouble? Justin, you know how that that verse ends? I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone quote the entire thing. So that you will be able to endure it. Many people hear that with the temptation will provide a way of escape. They think, oh, God's going to allow me to not experience the temptation. No, he gives us the way of escape from sinning so that we will be able to endure the trouble. Lamentations 3, 22, 23 says, the Lord's loving kindness, my favorite Hebrew word. His loving kindness, his loyalty, his steadfast love indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. So yes, there is, each day has its sufficient trouble, but with the sufficient trouble comes God's grace that is likewise sufficient. It is more than sufficient So you need not worry about tomorrow because God is not going to allow tomorrow to have one ounce more trouble than the grace he provides you to endure it. With each day's trouble comes each day's grace. So don't worry. 
And while you won't find COVID-19 in your Bible, you won't find virus, you won't find pandemic in your Bible, you know what you do find? Do not worry. So don't worry that the world is going to, that your world is going to end because God has been sustaining the world for many years and he's not about to stop now. We could lose the internet, we could lose power, we could lose gas, we could lose means of transportation. Nevertheless, don't worry. Don't worry about your life, about acquiring what you need for survival. Remember, all you have to do is look outside. Remember the birds. Remember the flowers. God faithfully cares for the lowest and the basest of his creations. He'll take care of you. Don't worry, as those who don't know God, don't worry as those for whom Christ did not die for. Romans 8, 32 says, If God did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us a couple things? Some things. All things. And don't worry about tomorrow's woes because God holds your hand to endure them and gives you the grace to get through them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these comforting words. We thank you, Lord, for loving sinners like us for making for the grace and the right or, or privilege rather it is to become your child not because of anything we've done but because of your sovereign grace in our lives thank you for this for the rights that we have for the privileges we have to call upon your grace thank you for the daily provision of grace thank you lord for our daily bread We ask that you would continue to keep us from evil. Watch over us. Watch over those that we care for. Watch over our communities. Thank you for being the kind and gracious God who has drawn near to us in a time such as this. Amen.